number 408. Today I'll be reading in Ephesians chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thanks, Grayson, for that reading. These are the verses we'll consider this morning as we begin our next part in Christianity and Ephesians. Uh, if you weren't here for parts one and two, please don't be concerned. This is very much a self-contained uh, study. And we're building upon things we've already learned, but also there are a lot of things that deserve their own detail and attention as we talk about these verses. As we've discussed before, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus doesn't deal with a specific sin or issue that they were facing, but is a sort of general Christianity, if you will, talking about... Michael's saying my mic's not on. Let me double check it. I am on, as far as I can tell. I'll talk loud or stay behind the podium, I guess. Uh, we want to think about Christianity in general terms as we read this letter, as we talk about it. Um, these two verses sort of encapsulate the message that we see to the church at Ephesus when Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is the first part of Ephesians is theory and concept and theology. The second part is godly living, practical application. And he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so as we look at what we've already discussed in the book of Ephesians, we see that, number one in part one, that he praised God for the blessings that we have that are in Christ Jesus. These are spiritual blessings. They're not just your run-of-the-mill physical blessings that many people on the earth enjoy, but rather the spiritual blessings that are found in Jesus Christ. And we see that those specific blessings are a result of the combined work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see that the reasons that God has done that is so that we would be a people who are holy and blameless, that we would be to the praise of his glory, and that all things would be gathered in Christ. And last time we talked about a prayer that Paul had for the, the church at Ephesus, that he wanted them to be enlightened in the knowledge of God. He wanted them to understand these blessings. He wanted them to know the hope to which they had been called. He wanted them to know that the value that God had placed on him is, is his glorious inheritance. He wanted them to know the immeasurable power that God had directed toward those who believe in him. And he said that power was based in God's work that he did in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him on his right hand 
at his throne and set him above all authority and set him as head as the head of the church. And those are the things that Paul is building on, specifically the last part of Ephesians chapter 1, where he talks about that work, the resurrection and exaltation of Christ, uh, his authority over all things. And he lifts Christ higher and higher and higher. And as he does that, he begins to shift in chapter 2, and we start to see a contrast to this exaltation of Christ. And I've entitled this Life from Death because that's exactly what he's talking about. He's going to contrast this exaltation of Christ, and he's going to contrast our state of being before we come to contact with Christ. And so he says in verse number 1 of Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead. And this is sort of a wet blanket on the fire that he's just been building all through chapter 1. Yes, God has done this mighty work in Christ, but guess what? You were dead. And it's meant to be shocking. It's meant to be a stark contrast. Because what does it mean that we were dead? Well, think about what we, in terms of when someone that we love dies, what does that mean? Well, that means that we no longer have a relationship with them. We're separated from them, at least physically in this life. We have no, we we can't talk to them. We can't confide in them. We can't cry with them. We can't laugh with them. There's no relationship there anymore because we're separated by death. Same is true when we talk about this spiritual death. We are separated by God. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah that when we sin, that we are separated from God. Our sins have separated us from him. What else about death? Well, it's a state of helplessness. What can a dead person do? Nothing. They can't do anything. And so in a state of spiritual death, we are helpless. We can't do anything in our state of spiritual death. We can't do anything in terms of saving ourselves or helping ourselves or, or making provision for ourselves. And so he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. That's the cause of death, if you will. It's our sins and trespasses that lead to spiritual death. You know, when the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16 The Bible says, The Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Excuse me. You may may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so people talk about the death that is mentioned here and think, well, he's talking about the curse of death, and that when Adam and Eve committed sin, then the curse of death was put on them that day, and eventually they died. No, he means in that day they died. He says, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God wasn't lying here. He wasn't speaking in general terms. He wasn't talking about the curse of death, physical death that would come upon men. He meant that in the day that they ate of that fruit, they died spiritually. It happened right then. The moment they tasted the fruit, they died. And the same is true for you and I. The very first time we commit sin with full knowledge of what we are doing, knowing that we are transgressing the law of God, we die spiritually. That's the cause of death. And we know he's talking about a spiritual death because he says you once walked. You walked in the trespasses and sins. They're not a bunch of zombies walking around. They're not a bunch of dead bodies animated and just walking around. They're, they're normal people living their lives, going about their business, but they were dead in their sins and their trespasses. And so they were, they were walking, they were following the course of this world. What is the course of this world? Well, it's sin and trespasses. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, 
John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. Notice how often he's emphasizing the world. This is what the course of the world is. The world and the things that are in it. What are the things in the world? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, the pride of life. As the King James says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That's it. And so Paul is saying the same thing here in Ephesians. He says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That's what it means to follow the course of this world. I remember in grade school when we talked about all the explorers who sort of went to the frontier of, of, of North America. I think of people like Lewis and Clark and, and you know, the Oregon Trail and people crossing the nation and they talked about trailblazers. And I don't remember names specifically or anything like that, but what a trailblazer is, it's not an SUV, kids. A trailblazer was someone who would go in front of a group of explorers and would blaze the trail, who would you know, mark certain locations for people to go. He would set the path. He would be on the lookout for things that were you know, going to cause problems. Trailblazers. And I want you to know there's a trailblazer to the course of this world, and that's Satan. We read about the prince of the power of the air. He says, you're following the course of the world, and you're following the prince of the power of the air. Now, what does it mean that he's the prince of the power of the air? There's a lot of thoughts out there about what that means. The air is everywhere. Everywhere we go, there's air, and everywhere we go, there's sin and the influence of Satan. And so in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Who's of the devil? Whoever makes a practice of sinning. Notice it's not just someone who commits sin and stumbles and falls and gets back up. This is someone who makes a practice of sinning. He says, For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You know, we may fool ourselves into thinking, I'm just free, free to be me. I'm not bound to some law, to some God who doesn't really understand me, and I can live the way I want to live. I can live in freedom. I can do what I want to do, and I'm free to do that. You may think you're free, but what you really are is a slave. You're a slave to the trailblazer of the course of this world. You're a slave. You're a follower of Satan. And let's not fool ourselves. Let's not let ourselves think that we're free when actually we're a slave of sin and a slave to the trailblazer of the course of this world. But notice how he phrases this in this passage. He says in verse 1, you were dead. Verse 2, you once walked. Verse 3, we all once lived. Verse 4, we were by nature children of wrath. He's talking in the past tense here. He said, this is the way that it was. But it's not anymore. This, the, this phrasing the way he puts this, it begs for the word but, doesn't it? And that's exactly what we get in the next passage. You were dead. You once walked, but something changed. Okay, this, we all, grade school grammar, the word but is a coordinating conjunction. What does it do? It contrasts what we're seeing now. You were dead, but now you're alive. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's changed now. We're not dead anymore. 
You're not walking in your sins and trespasses. You're not following the course of this world. You're not following Satan. Now you're alive. You've changed from a state of spiritual death to spiritual life. And in part, a large part, because of the rich mercy and love that God has towards us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he says, he loved us. Even when you were dead, God loved you. He talks about this in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But, there's that word again, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What is he contrasting here? He's contrasting what some people might be willing to die for. We might be willing to die for a righteous person. We might even willing occasionally to lay our life down for a good person. He says, but God didn't do that. What did God do while we were still weak, while we were still sinners? God loved us. How did he love us? Christ died for us. Christ didn't die for righteous people. He didn't die for even good people. He died for weak sinners. And we need not forget that. And we need not forget the cost of that. Because as we're going to see as we go through our study today, a lot of false doctrine stems from the corruption, the perversion of this passage of Scripture that we're going to read this morning. A lot of people look at this and they draw false conclusions And they pervert the word of God. And they say the the grace of God is rich and wonderful, and it is. But look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. He says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Is he saying those things don't exist? No, he's not saying that. He's saying that they do exist. God is rich in his kindness and his forbearance and his patience. He says, but do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? Is it meant to lead you to just live whatever life you want to live because he is rich in grace? No, it's meant to lead you to repentance. It's meant to lead you to a change of life, a change of heart. And when we see the riches of God's grace that he's bestowed upon us, when we understand the riches of his mercy and the greatness of his love, that doesn't mean, oh, well, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Of course not. It's meant to lead us to repentance. This is a love that I can't fully comprehend. I don't understand it. I don't understand why God would love me, why he would show his love for me, why he would die for the ungodly. But he did. And so we see this interjection right in the middle of this, by grace you are saved. So God made us alive. You know, this is, this is the main action of this passage here. You know, again, going back to grade school grammar, remember when you used to have to underline, go like get a little bitty sentence and underline the subject and the verb of the sentence? The cat ran. The cat is the subject. Ran is the verb. And you always had to find, and as a kid, I was like, why am I doing this? I hate this. It's very useful when it comes to Bible study, by the way. But this is the main verb. God made us alive. 
You were dead, but now you're alive. He made us alive. He raised us. He seated us. And he did this with Christ. And we've talked about this the last couple of times when we talk about being in Christ, how Paul emphasized in the whole first chapter, in Christ, in him, in the beloved, in Christ Jesus. And he's doing the same thing here five times in four verses, with Christ, with him, with him, in Christ Jesus, that so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's all about being in Christ. This is the only way to be raised to life. When we're in spiritual death, when we commit that first sin and become separated from God, there's only one way back to life. And that is to be raised with Christ. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to who? For those that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You want no condemnation on your soul? You want to be free from condemnation? You better be in Christ. Because it's found in no other place. We read this passage in Ephesians 1 last time, talking about the wondrous works that God has done in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. He says, And what is the measurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And we talked about this exaltation of Jesus and the mighty work that God worked in him when he resurrected him from the dead and seated him at his right hand and gave him all authority and power. But here's the great thing about that. Now he's really going to double down on that and he's making the connection back to that and he's using the exact same words to describe what God has done for you and I. And so when God raised him, Jesus, from the dead, what else happened? Well, when we obey the gospel, he raises us up with him. And when he seated him at his right hand, he seats us with him. And there in the heavenly places where Jesus is, guess where we are? We are in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And this is the wonderful work of God, this mighty, immeasurable greatness. He uses the same word there, the immeasurable riches of his grace, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us in Christ, toward us who believe. And we thought this was a great work, mighty work before. Understand what God did to Christ, he does to us. He makes us alive. He raises us up with him. See, he doesn't just make us alive. He makes us his own. He makes us his children. We have the glorious inheritance. We receive the reward of Christ when we're raised up with him. That word immeasurable, we talked about it last time. Can't quantify it. And so he says, by grace you've been saved. He throws that in there. By grace you have been saved. He said in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. We can't and will not downplay the grace of God. We don't deserve this. We were dead. We were helpless. There's nothing we could do. But we're made alive in Christ, and we're raised up with him. This next passage I want to pay special attention to because if there's any controversy, it's found 
in this passage. And so Paul is going to sort of, I wouldn't call it a conclusion, but sort of wrapping up his thoughts in this area, expounding on the marvels of our salvation, which is a result of our faith in a response to God's grace. And I want to spend some time on this um, because, like I said, false doctrine comes from people perverting this passage of Scripture. And I don't want to neglect dealing with that. Um, I want to know what did the Holy Spirit intend when it inspired Paul to write these words? And what did it not intend? What does it not mean? First, obviously, by grace. We've already talked about it. Grace is a fundamental fact of Christian theology. He says, by grace you've been saved, and this is not your own doing. You didn't do this. God did it. You don't deserve it. It's the gift of God. You know, it's that time of year. The giving of gifts is about to happen, right? Probably it's already started happening with some people. We give gifts to people. Do those gifts come with strings attached? If they do, they're not really gifts. I'm going to give my kids gifts. Do they deserve them? Probably not. (laughs) My kids probably don't deserve the gifts they're going to be getting. But I'm probably going to give them anyway. Why? Because they're my children. I love them. I want to give them gifts. It's not a result of works. I probably should make my kids go rake the leaves in order to get their gifts. But I won't do that. I'm going to give them their gifts. But no one will boast. We can't boast in our salvation. We can't say I earned this. We can't say I worked for this. We can't say I did something to deserve this because we didn't. Paul told Titus in chapter 3, verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Why did he save us? Not because of any works done by us in righteousness, but, there's that word again, according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I know we want to swing that pendulum away from that free grace doctrine, don't we? From from belief only. There's a a term, I believe it's called antinomianism or nomialism, that just simply means... God's grace is there, and nothing we do can prevent it. Nothing we can do can earn it. It's all about God's grace and not our performance. It's a false doctrine, and we want to swing that pendulum away from that, don't we? But we better be careful not to swing it too far because the idea that we are saved by grace and don't deserve our salvation, it's very much a biblical concept. We should not forget that. We should not fail to teach it. He says, by grace you have been saved. I want to talk about this word saved. Again, that's a verb in this case. And it has special meaning. And I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on this, but the the tense of this verb is what they call present perfect tense. And that's just a fancy way of saying this is an action that happened in the past and is now continuing forward to affect the present. Okay, so when he says we are, you have been saved, he's not talking about something that happened once in the past and is now done. You were saved and that's it and good luck. No, you were saved and that salvation perpetuates itself into the present. 
And when we talk about perpetual salvation, the perpetuation of the gospel, we're not talking about the Calvinist doctrine of once saved, always saved, the perseverance of the saints. We're not saying you can't fall from grace. What we're saying is the action of our salvation by the grace of God, whenever that happened in our past, continues now into our present. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you in which you received, in which you stand. You're currently standing in the gospel, he says. He says, and by which you are being saved right now. You're being saved by the gospel. Okay, these are, this is the here and now. Not it happened in the past, but it happened in the past and is still happening right now. But he throws in this word, if. It's condition, right? You mean our salvation is conditional? Is the grace of God conditional? You bet it's conditional. The scriptures are very clear on that. He says, if you hold fast the word I preach to you. So you are standing in the gospel. You are being saved. If you hold fast the word I preach to you. What's the word I preach to you? It's the gospel. So our salvation is conditional on us holding fast to the gospel. What is the gospel but the story of the grace of God? But he does place conditions upon our salvation, doesn't he? And that's really where the controversy appears when it comes to this passage, because there's no one who's going to say, we're not saved by the grace of God. Any kind of theologian, any kind of pastor or teacher or preacher or evangelical, And 99% of Christians are going to tell you, we are saved by the grace of God. And they're going to look at this phrase, through faith, and they're going to say, yes, we're saved through faith. Faith is the mechanism by which we access the grace of God, and no one is going to deny that. The question is, what is faith? Because that's where the, the differences are going to come in. That's where the controversy is going to happen. Because as we said before, there are a lot of people in this world who are going to teach that faith simply means you believe in Jesus Christ. You believe in him. Believe in Jesus, and you have faith, and therefore you are saved by God's grace. Just get on YouTube sometime and search up sermons about the grace of God or sermons about faith. It will not take you long at all. You're going to hear preachers say these exact Words. You mean I don't have to do anything to be saved? Nothing. All you have to do is believe. That's what you're going to hear. And brothers and sisters, that is not true. And that is not what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Now, if this is all we have, if Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is the only passage of Scripture we have, maybe you can come to that conclusion. But as Paul says, we want to teach the full counsel of God, don't we? We have more than just Ephesians chapter 2. We have the rest of the Bible. And we have other writings of Paul as well. But we also have the writing of James. And I want to take, spend a little bit of time in the book of James chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. He says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You see, it was already an issue that James was dealing with. This idea of faith and works and what do I have to do? What do I not have to do? What is grace? What is faith? Show me your faith apart from works. I will show you 
my faith by my works. It's something that can be seen. It's something I can show you. It's something you can show me. People say my faith is a very private thing. God knows that I have faith. I should know you have faith. You should know that I have faith. By what? By my works. By my response to my belief. He says, you believe there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder or tremble, as the King James says. That we have examples of demons and the people possessed with demons in the New Testament coming to Jesus, addressing Him as the Son of God. Obviously, they believe He's the Son of God. Does that mean they have faith in Him? They're terrified of Him. I know that. Verse 20 says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see then that you see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. What were his works? What he did. When he offered his son Isaac, was there anything righteous, inherently righteous, And Abraham offering his son Isaac? No, in fact, child sacrifices were condemned by God in the Old Testament. But he was doing what God told him to do. And obviously God stopped that and he didn't sacrifice his son. But that was an act of faith. He was showing his faith and he was acting on his faith. And his faith was completed by those works. So do we have a disconnect here? Paul says... Your salvation is not a result of works. But then James says, Abraham was justified by works. Do we have a contradiction? You know, one of the basic principles of Bible interpretation is simply the Bible does not contradict itself. We believe that. We trust in that. We teach that. And if that is the case, if the Bible doesn't contradict itself, you cannot come away after reading the book of James, especially chapter 2 in this section, you cannot come away from that believing that faith just simply means belief. You can't come away with that idea. It's too clear. It's too plain. So therefore, faith must be more than simply just believing. And if we believe that when he says it's not a result of works, we have to believe that means something besides works of faith. Remember, Paul told Titus, we were saved not by works of righteousness that we have done. He's talking about those works of righteousness there. He's not talking about works of faith. Works of faith are exactly the kind of works that will save us. You know, that a lot of people, proponents of this faith only, take great exception to the book of James. A lot of very well-known, Martin Luther, the great reformer who could probably be considered the father of this faith-only or grace-only or belief-only doctrine, he didn't like the book of James. And you can find multiple quotes from him in his writings. We're going to read one this morning. Listen to what he says here. He says, the epistle of James gives us much trouble. Why did it give him trouble? Because it didn't jive with his belief system. It didn't jive with his theology. It gives us much trouble, he says, for the papists embrace it alone and leave out all the rest. The papists is the Catholic Church. He says, accordingly, if they will not admit my interpretations, I then, then I shall make rubble also 
of it. Notice he didn't say, I'll make rubble of their interpretation. He said, I'm just going to make rubble of it. Of what? The book of James. He says, I almost feel like throwing Jimmy into the stove, as the priest in Kallenberg did. And that's just an obscure reference that he's making there to some priest who had these wooden figurines of the apostles, and he used them to, to light his fire, to light his stove. Here's Martin Luther, the great reformer, the great proponent of faith only, of grace only, of belief only. And he says, I think the book of James, we should just throw it in the stove. I just want to make rubble of it. Why? Because he can't do anything with it. He can't separate it from his beliefs. And if he can't make it job with his beliefs, then it must not really be the word of God. It must not really be inspired. And it never occurred to him to think, Maybe my belief system is flawed. Maybe what I've been teaching is wrong. And we can easily reconcile this concept with the Scriptures. It's not like it's difficult. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, it says, In him you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So he's talking about putting that old man to death, isn't he? Cutting off that flesh. Cutting off the weakness. In the filthiness. Listen to what he says in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also, what? Raised with him. What in the world we've been talking about all morning? People who were dead, who have been raised with Christ. Raised with him. Seated with him. Exalted with him. Alive in him. The same man that wrote Ephesians is the same man that wrote Colossians. And he's saying, we are buried with him in baptism. And that is the point at which we are raised with him. Through what? Through faith in the powerful working of God. Remember that mighty work that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and exalted him? We have faith in that when we are baptized into Christ. And that is the point at which we are raised with him. So, Ephesians 2, 8. By grace you've been saved through faith. Colossians 2 and 12. Buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith. Very easily reconciled. And this doesn't have to mean that we're only saved and our salvation is not conditional and that we just don't have to do anything. And what in the world is so righteous anyway about letting somebody dunk me in water? Nothing except for the fact that God said to do it, because that's the point at which I'm going to raise you with Christ. And he says, we are his workmanship, in verse 10. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's not contradicting himself. He's showing us that it's the grace of God should lead us to repentance, as he said to the Romans. And this is simply just the first in a long line of acts of faith, works of faith that you and I perform as Christians. Baptism is just the beginning. And it is a work, but it's not my work, it's God's work. And that's how we are raised with Christ. So I hope that we can all understand, I want us to understand the magnitude and the depth and the riches of God's grace that he's extended to us. We should teach the grace of God. We should teach that we do not deserve salvation. 
We should teach that we were once dead and he made us alive in Christ because that's the way it is. He loved us even in our sin and he died for us. And God raised us up with him. You made the choice to do that in your life today. You made the choice to submit to God in faith, to receive his grace, and to be buried with him in baptism, and in which you'll be raised with him through faith. Paul said the same thing to the church at Rome. As many of us as have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death, Therefore, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life, raised with him. If you haven't done that this morning, please take care of that today. We have everything that we need here right now to help you receive the grace of God and become a child of his. If you need the prayers of this congregation for any reason, please come have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing.